Our second reading is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will, co- he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every, every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. The word of the Lord. In Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we read, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. This is after Jesus' baptism. The Holy Spirit has fallen and said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And he is about to begin his public vocational ministry as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. It's quite a job title to have to step into. And much like any job title, you have a season of preparation and training. Forty days in the wilderness to pray and seek the Lord God and to be tempted by the devil. Now that's strange to us because it doesn't seem like the sort of thing, why would God send him out into the wilderness to be tempted? And I think some of it has to do with the way we use that word temptation in our modern culture as opposed to the way the Bible understands it. So a better way of understanding it for us is that it's there to help set you up for what's next and to prove whether you're ready for it, if you would. So an example of that is how all of you who are out here who drive ended up being able to drive, right? You at some point had to pass through all the driving apparatus in your state or country, wherever it was. So it starts at 15 and so many months in this state with getting a learner's permit. Now, the process of a learner's permit is very simple. You have to pass a test, a simple test. It involves sitting at the DMV for two or three hours patiently. You don't know when they're going to call on your name because you don't have a name. You just have a letter and a series of numbers that actually don't mean anything. And eventually, they pick you. And you're not sure why you got picked, but then you go forward, and then you take the actual test. The test itself is 20 questions. 
Very simple, except that some of them are a little challenging because the first 10 questions on the state of Virginia DMV test, at least it was, I don't know if it's changed, is road signs. Now the problem with road signs is they can look like these road signs here and you have no idea what's actually being said. If you're a new driver and these are the road signs you meet, what are you supposed to do? As an adult American, you just keep driving, right? Like you just ignore the signs. But as a 15 and eight month old, you have no idea what to do. Go ahead, take the test and then you get your learner's permit. And then after your learner's permit, you have to get a certain number of hours driving with your parents and then you have to take behind the wheel. Now I did behind the wheel with, um, with the county, the public schools, you can also do it privately. And that's one of those things where you enter in, and when I entered into it, I was a confident driver of a couple of months because I had driven with my parents, I knew how to drive. The problem was you get in a car with other drivers who don't know how to drive, some of whom aren't sure what the different things on the ground are for. I'm not sure they've been in a car, so they get behind the wheel, and you're in the back seat because you're just a passenger waiting your turn. And in the front seat is the driver, another 15-year-old who's never seen a car before, and the instructor. And you hope that this little lap belt back in the 90s when I was doing it is going to keep you alive when she or he crashes into something. Now, of course, my uber confidence was melted when my driving instructor had me with a car full of kids get on the highway and pull off of the highway. And the problem with highways is not driving 60, it's pulling on and pulling off. It's the merging if you haven't done it yet. Because here's the problem is as a, as a driver that knew what I was doing at 15 and 9 months, 10 months, I knew that I was supposed to check my mirrors, put on my turn signal, check my mirrors, and then look left in order to merge. The problem is when you look left, what happens with your hand on the steering wheel? It goes the opposite direction. So we were about a millimeter from hitting a, a cement barrier at 60 when the instructor yanked the wheel back. I, of course, was deeply offended that he didn't trust me. I knew what I was doing. I was gonna turn it back before we bounced off that wall. The last challenge for any young driver is parking. Parking is nearly impossible. You see adults, your parents pull right into a space, and for some reason it takes you 30 or 40 spaces. Sometimes the adults aren't very good examples of how to park. For instance, I saw this parking job on Church Street just a few weeks ago. <laughs> now, I'm pretty sure the rule is something in the range of 12 inches from the curb. The cement, the white part, is 12 inches from the curb. So if you're just looking at how your parents drive, it may not be the best example. Then you end up going out and taking the test with the, behind the, the actual driver at the DMV. And for me, I thought it was gonna be a big deal. My mom warned me about having to parallel park, all these things you have to do. Of course, when I got my driver's license, it involved turning right out of the DMV, turning left at the next intersection, doing a U-turn on this little side street, and coming back to the DMV. It took about a minute, and I passed. It was very easy. I now have a driver's license. I'm not sure I should have gotten it when I was 16. But you have to pass those tests in order to be prepared, right? It proves your ability, your readiness to drive. That's actually what the word temptation means. The word temptation defined is actually used in, in, the, in the Bible as trial or temptation. And we tend to think of temptation as I'm gonna do something bad, and trial is a difficulty, but the Bible uses them interchangeably to talking about testing, proving, revealing, revealing the quality or truth of something. The metaphors that are used in scripture involve a courtroom, something is put on trial to prove whether it's guilty or not, or putting something in a furnace like a blacksmith 
to burn off the excess, the dross, and prove the, the strength of the, the iron, or the, the, the purity of the gold, okay? Today, if we were gonna use similar analogies that would fit today, we would talk about school exams. You take school exams not just because your teachers don't like you, but in order to prove that you know the information. Navy SEALs have to go through multiple years of training, underwater demolition, parachute training, all the ability to use weapons, and then six months, six months of Navy SEAL training. And not everyone makes it, most do not. You don't want a Navy SEAL that looks like me and has my abilities. You want them three, four years on the other side of their full training, proven to be ready. Jesus starts with his first temptation. And when the days were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Satan, his first trial or temptation or test is, hey, look, you're the son of God you're hungry, make some bread. It's pretty simple. Now, the question that many people ask when they look at the temptations of Jesus was like, Jesus was God's son, right? He was God. So was he really ever actually tempted? Now, that's, of course, the false theology that Jesus was more God than man. Christianity holds that he was both fully God and fully man. Hebrews chapter 4 says it very clearly, Jesus was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Because Jesus did not sin does not mean that he wasn't tempted. In fact, his perfection in obeying God is proof that he was tempted even harder than we were. This is C.S. Lewis's great logic in Mere Christianity when he writes this, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried to be good. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he is the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as us, but far worse, because he didn't give in after an hour, or two, or three days. We resist once, twice, Ah, that's too much. But the temptation for Jesus was not the way we think about it, about doing something illicit or, or a vice. What was the temptation? The temptation was use your divinity, your godness, for your own good. You are God, just use it. Philippians 2.6, which is, uh, is one of the ones that we confess, Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus was in very nature God, but did not exploit, now this is a translation off of the, the Greek, did not exploit his divinity for his own good. 
That's how Jesus exercised his divine power. He didn't exploit it for his own good. He submitted it to the Father's will for the good of others always. So there he is hanging on the cross, right? And what are all the people taunting? The religious leaders, the people walking by, the, the, the Roman soldiers? Hey, if you are the Christ, come down from there. He actually could have. Not only that, he could have eliminated, killed, destroyed every single person who spoke to him. How many of you, if you're being crucified and mocked and have the power to not only come down but obliterate your enemies, wouldn't do it? But he doesn't utilize his power for his own good. That's what faith is. Faith is surrendering all of your assets to God. Your gifts, your talents, your relationships, your time, your wealth, all of your assets to be used for his purposes, not yours. Faith is cultivating dependence, not just being responsible. Jesus replies, what I really need even more than bread, is my Father. If I have God and his word, even if my body dies, I have what I need. The second temptation of Jesus is listed as the third one in the Gospel of Luke, but the second one in the Gospel of Matthew, and I think that's the correct order, but the order doesn't matter as much, but I'm going to jump to the third one in Luke that is the second one, I think, in the right order. It's on the temple and the angels. Don't, don't get hung up on that, all right? Verse 9, and he took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan's question in taking him up to the top of the temple is, well, are you the Son of God or not? You see, Jesus hasn't actually fully begun exploring his divinity yet and his vocation as Christ. Are you the Son of God? Is the Father really with you? How do you know? What if he's just setting you up for horrible failure? He's questioning God's goodness. At its root, this trial is to question the goodness of God. And Satan, of course, twists God's word. He quotes scripture, but he misuses it. And he basically is saying, hey, you should make God prove himself. Here's what he says. Why don't you hold it up to him? It's the same thing that Satan does in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, he twists God's word. When he comes along to the woman in verse 1 of Genesis 3 and says, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The implication is, how stingy of him? What's he holding back? No, God said, you may eat of any tree except, but Satan twists it just enough to manipulate the wording for his own good, to sow doubt in Eve and Adam. Did God really say? And then verse four and five, what, what's wrong? You will not surely die if you eat. God knows that if you do eat, you're just gonna be like him. You're gonna know things. You see, God's just holding back on you. That's why he makes these prohibitions, these things you're not supposed to do. He's trying to hold back on what, what you have in store for you. 
Go ahead and take advantage of it, Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve do what every human does. We make a decision on our own. Eve looked, and she saw that the tree, this is verse 6, that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desired to make one wise. She took of it, ate, and gave it to her husband who was standing there with her, and he ate. Think about the description. This is not an enticement to something that we would actually think of as bad. It's not go and murder somebody. Go and commit adultery. Go and steal from somebody. It's go and eat that piece of fruit that looks good, tastes good, is good, and has benefits. So how is it possible that a good, enjoyable, beneficial thing is wrong? In Christianity, sin is not doing bad things. Sin is not doing things that we think of as taboo in our culture. Sin is always defined in relation to God. It's learning to rely on, trust in, and listen to God, to depend on and obey him, to suggest that anything he says is what I am called to do, and anything he says I am not meant to do, I am not meant to do. But Satan is quite good at twisting not only God's word, but encouraging us into things that we see and think of as good. You see, Satan is called an accuser and a liar, but he's also a cheerleader. He's a really good encourager. All he needs to do is cause us to think about the good things in life that God's withholding for no good reason. And say, go ahead, you deserve it. Eat. It looks good. It is good. Go for it. He wants us to do or be anything so long as it's not what God intends. How does Satan say that to us? My experience, and I think N.T. Wright in his short little commentary on Luke suggests the same thing is happening here with Jesus, is that it's not the voice of a slithering snake with a lisp yelling at us in this scary voice. Rather, it, Satan's voice in my experience, sounds a lot like my own voice. Inside of my head, that inner dialogue when God is not present. He enters that inner dialogue when I'm pushing apart from God and promotes what I'm already thinking and wanting. He plays on my imagination or insecurities or fears and doubts or self-righteousness and pride. Now, my guess is for most of you, you haven't had Satan tell you to pick up an ax and murder somebody. But while Satan will not encourage you to murder your rival because he knows you're not really gonna do that, he'll instead encourage you to be insecure about your rival, to doubt your place in your friendship circle, to wonder about your self-worth and identity. He gets us to focus on what we most want and think we must have. Now again, we take that word temptation and we always think about it as doing something illicit or wrong or inappropriate, right? But temptation to sin 
may feel like being drawn to do something wrong or bad, but actually all temptation by the biblical understanding of it is always a matter of belief versus unbelief. It's anything that reveals the object of our faith. When we think of temptation as simply being drawn to do something bad or illicit or a vice, we fail to see the root problem and we're not willing to see the real solution. So if you're looking at it the way Jesus is being exposed to it, the way that Satan deals with Adam and Eve in the garden and the way that temptation or trial plays out in scripture, every circumstance in your life, every circumstance in your life is a temptation. Because any change in your circumstance tests or reveals what you actually believe. Think about Joseph in the Old Testament Joseph, the one with the technicolored dream coat. He dealt with both enticement and hardship as forms of temptation. Potiphar's wife throws herself at him, causing him to say, will I believe and trust God and follow him? And he suffers from years of false enslavement and jail. Will I trust and believe in God? Suffering or success can cause you to push away from God. If everything's going well in your career, you've got a lot of money, eventually you try to, you, it's, it's hard not to think, I'm pretty good on my own. I don't really need God. The temptation and success is independence. But if things are failing, if you're struggling, if you're unemployed, the temptation is accusation to blame God, to not trust that he's good. If we don't see unbelief as the issue, then we'll fail to confess all of our sin. We'll confess our vices, but not our inner brokenness and fallenness. And that's why we need to get down to the root, the heart of the matter, the desires of our heart, if you would. Pastor Tim Keller preaching on the book of James said, sin is not wanting a bad thing. Sin is not wanting a bad thing it's wanting a thing badly. It's built on this idea in James chapter 1, verse 14, which says, each person is tempted when he is lured by his own desire. And that word desire is the one that we've hit on before called epithumia, which epi means over, greater, bigger than. Thumia means your desire, your wants. So an epithumia is your controlling desire the main part of your heart, what you really love. You're tempted, I'm tempted, to love anything other than God. And whatever is at the core of my heart will come out. When we think of sin as simply doing bad things, we treat it in ourselves with willpower and penance. And with others, we hold them to account. We need not more willpower. We need a greater desire, a greater love. Thomas Chalmers, an 18th century Scottish preacher and theologian, wrote a little book called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He was talking about how do you overcome sin in your life. He said the way to overcome sin is not just to kind of say no really hard, to try with more self-control, you know, to do like Ulysses and tie yourself to the mast so that you can listen to the sirens, but, but no matter what happens, you'll fight against it. Yes, there are times when you need self-control, 
If you can't stop binge watching, hide the remote controls. If you can't stop eating the ice cream, don't buy the ice cream, right? You know, pretty simple, right? But in the end, self-control and willpower is not enough. You need a greater affection. You need to love and desire something more. We all need a love that transcends our circumstances and our needs. Your career, your kids, the love and approval of people can fill you up for a time. Money, pleasure, power are all possibly good things that you can enjoy. But they don't last, and they're not big enough. You can only fill that void in your heart with God. He's the only one who will transcend the circumstances of your life. And that's why ultimately the question that's being dug at through whatever Jesus is going through with Satan is a worship question, a worship question. The question ultimately for Jesus as he's going through these trials is, who is God? Who is your God? We all have something that is God. Satan knows this. And that's why he comes to the ultimate challenge about the kingdoms. We see this in chapter four of, of Luke, verses five through eight. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom it I will. If you then will worship me, Satan, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. See, Jesus came for the very purpose of establishing a kingdom. He goes around preaching saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. There's a kingdom that Jesus came to bring in. And Satan is simply saying, well, go ahead, do it. The kingdom is here. You can have your kingdom, Jesus. And if you think about it, all of his brothers and sisters, all of his friends and family were longing for a new kingdom. They had been sitting under Rome and Roman Empire for centuries. They had been dealing with oppression, and they were longing for the day when God would come and establish a new Jerusalem, a new Israel that would rule the entire universe, or at least the Roman Empire. And Satan is saying, look, you can throw off Caesar now. You can get rid of the Roman Empire now. You can establish that Yahweh-centered, Jerusalem-centered empire now. The thing is, Jesus would have done a good job. I mean, of all the presidents and kings and emperors, you kind of want a Jesus, right, to be your emperor? So why not just take advantage of it, Jesus? It's a good thing. Political power and authority is a good thing. It's much like the temptation in The Lord of the Rings, in the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, when the good guys have the ring, and they're sitting around with a powwow saying, what should we do with the ring? And one of the guys, a man, says, why don't we keep the, the, the evil ring and use it for ourselves? And that way we can defeat the bad guys. Just go ahead and take their weapon and use it against them. Go ahead, Jesus. 
kingdom is a really good and wonderful thing. But the question that's being asked is, who defines the kingdom? Who defines the kingdom in your life? How do you define the good life, what you're really after? The kingdom of God is an upside down sort of kingdom. Jesus explains it later when he says, the, those who lose their life are the ones who will save it. Those who wanna be great must be servant of all. Blessed are those who are persecuted, the poor, the weak, the dependent. It's an upside down kingdom. What Satan was offering was Jesus to have a kingdom but not the kingdom. And of course, what was required was worship me. That's what Satan says. Now, what would that actually look like if Jesus worshiped Satan? I think you need to get out of your head the idea that Jesus, guy with a beard and the white robe, is bowing down to some red, pitchforked, horned devil while the devil's there standing over top of him. And instead, think about what we were talking about earlier, which often is this. Satan comes most often guised in our own inner dialogue voice, right? Encouraging us to do what we already want to do. That's essentially what Satan is doing with Jesus. He's encouraging Jesus to do what he already wants to do. You're hungry? Eat. You are the son of God? Take advantage of that. You are coming to establish a kingdom? Go ahead, Jesus. If Satan often works in our inner dialogue, encouraging us to do what we want to do, I think Satan would be quite fine with the worship of me. Bow down and worship me. We take it this way. Sure, I'm going to bow down and worship me. Individualism, independence, self-determination. I'm in control. It's my life. I can do what I want. All of those are the language of the kingdom of me. Bow down and worship me. Oh, don't worry, Satan, I'm already good at that. <laughs> In fact, all of us are. Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, and Satan departs. You know, in the garden, Adam and Eve failed to trust God and sin entered the world, and we live in a fallen and broken world, all of us fallen and broken. But there was a second garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, in which Jesus succeeded. Satan is tempting him to find another way besides the cross, and it, the desire of his heart is to find another way besides the cross. But in the end, Jesus lays it down before the Father and says, not my will, but yours be done. He was faithful where Adam and Eve were unfaithful. He was faithful to the point of death on the cross. He obeyed, desiring God's will more than his own. And Jesus lived the perfect life, died the sinner's death, so that we who struggle in this sinful life can be offered the perfect end. Here's the deal. Your whole life is gonna be one of trial and temptation. You're constantly going through, even right now. And here's the answer. The first answer, you will fail. You will fail, constantly. Years ago, I failed terribly. I acted very selfishly and hurt somebody badly. 
Now, I confessed to the person. I confessed to some close friends. But I still was racked with guilt and the question of whether God would forgive me. And one of the friends that I confessed to passed a note card to me, and the note card simply had Hebrews chapter 4 on it. It said, for we do not have a high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I remember reading that over and over again and in tears, so grateful for the gift of Jesus Christ. He was tempted in every way, but he did not give in. And in his death, he paved a way for me to approach God on the basis of his death and not my goodness. Because it is by grace we are saved. So when you fail, the question is, what will you do? Will you feel awful and beat yourself up or simply try harder, a little more willpower, self-determination? Or will you come to the throne of grace, experience mercy and grace, the love and forgiveness that Jesus offers? Let us pray. God, our Father, you sent your Son to walk the life that we lived, to live the life we were meant to live and die the death we deserve to die. And in his death, his faithful obedience, he offers us grace and mercy and forgiveness. Lord, may we see our turning against you, lay it all down before you, and receive your mercy and grace this day and every day. Amen.